All right, it's already past that time. You can go and make your way down to your seats. And if you're already sitting down, if you want to turn your books to Judges. I want to thank Vance for coming for me last week. He would not have wanted me to come in uh, and be here. And we'll be in Judges chapter 8. Hopefully everybody else is feeling fine. It seems like something's been going around that's pretty strong. And Judges chapter 8. So Vance um, was able to cover Gideon for me last week. Uh, and uh, I kind of wish I could have done that because there was so much to talk about with Gideon. <clears throat> so I want to kind of finish off with um, some aspects about Gideon that uh, I wanted to just, again, touch upon. Uh, Gideon was doing so well. He, uh, he was doing such a good job. He, um, he knew about God. Uh, which, again, we see, see that as a downfall for the people of Israel in general. Obviously, they still passed along um, the stories about God and his works because we see it recounted over and over again. We see God recounting it for them, reminding them. Um, he knew uh, if he saw God, he would die. We see that in verse 22 um, in chapter 7. Let me make sure that's... No, that's going to be in chapter 6. Yeah, chapter 6, when Gideon is visited, verse 22. Um, so he knew that he understood that concept about God, that he couldn't actually see God face-to-face. Um, thankfully, it was just an angel of God. Otherwise, he would, be, he would not have been able to live. Um, he trusted God. He was zealous for God. Uh, enough to initially tear down the altar of Baal. And by doing that, essentially, um, that being a death sentence, those, those people who worship him was going to, were going to kill him. Um, thankfully his father stood up for him, but that kind of put into works, put into motion the battles that were going to be ensuing. And so, um, he trusted God and he did, and he did that, uh, for God. So he started out doing um, all these great things for God, and of course the battles that ensued. And in Judges 8, <clears throat> his response here is, is great, because uh, in verse 22, I'm going to read to verse 27. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, and also your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. So they're asking him to be the leader, essentially the king of the, the, the people here. In verse 24, Yet Gideon said to them, I would request of you that each of you give me an earring for spoil, for they had gold earrings which they, because they were Ishmaelites. So all the earrings they took off their, from their conquest. And they said, Surely we'll give them to you. So they spread out a garment, every one of them, and threw an earring from there into the spoil. The weight of the gold earring that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. 
besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple robes which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the neckbands that were on each of the camels' necks. And this is where we see um, Gideon kind of fall, uh, right at the end too, um, verse 27. Gideon made it into an ephod. Now, if you remember, ephod is uh, typically something that one of the priests wore, the Levitical priests, and they wore it uh, when they were doing their, their, their duties, their priestly duties. Um, and it doesn't really describe what exactly he made, but you'll see through judges uh, when ephods are being mentioned, it's more for pagan worship. So um, not really doesn't really describe what it was, but getting made it into an ephod, uh, ephods didn't take 1,700 shekels of gold, so it kind of lends credence to it. It's part of the pagan worship. <clears throat> so he placed it in his city, Apora, and all of Israel played a harlot with it there. So it became a snare to Gideon and to his household. Doing so good. What happened? Um, was he trying to make something to, for God? And instead it became um, a stumbling block to the people because of the pride in their accomplishments. Uh, instead of putting their... their uh, the, giving the glory to God, how how he how he they should how he requests it. Instead, they try to do it in their own ways. Is it a misplaced or misguided understanding of God that they did this? I think it's a good uh, way of giving warnings to us about our own successes. Uh, give glory to God how He re- wants it, and try not to give glory to ourselves um, while we're doing that. And, again, that was a stumbling block for Gideon that we should definitely heed um, that lesson. So verse 28 and 29. We see that uh, Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel, and they did not lift up their heads anymore. The land was undisturbed for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Again, 40 years is about a, a generation which was typically how much they either, um, it's usually how much they, uh, they got reprieve from being overtaken. And, and then uh, Zerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and lived into his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons who were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. Here's another downfall of Gideon. Uh, we see... <clears throat> that he let his prosperity uh, steal his victory from him. Not only with the, the gold, but also with the fame that he got. Um, Seventy sons. And again, he had that because he abandoned God's design for the family. And he um, essentially did what people do in success. They take multiple wives for themselves, uh, various concubines. And you'll see here how that causes issues. And that's why God gives us instructions on how he designed um, He designed us, how he designed us to be. Um, we're designed to be in a monogamous, trusting relationship. And when we go against that design, problems 
come up all the time. If we could only heed God's instructions to us and advice to us on how he he gives us hints on how to live um, good lives, but yet we think we know better. So uh, we see here, again, um, he had 70 sons. And in verse 31, his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son and named him Abimelech, which is a good name to name your son. It's my divine father is king. You know, that's admirable. But yet again, the, the way that it came about um, wasn't praising God. He was praising God through naming his children, but he wasn't praising God with how he went about having these children. <clears throat> so verse 32. Uh, I'm gonna read, just, we're going to finish off with 35, 31 through 35. So verse 32, uh, Gideon and his son Joash, uh, Gideon the son of Joash, died at a ripe old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash, Napora of the Abyssalites. Then it came about as soon as Gideon was dead that the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal-berith their god. And thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their god who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in accord with all the good that he had done to Israel. So he's going to be soon reaping the consequences of not following, again, God's design. One thing that we're going to, um, I want to mention here is about the city of Shechem, which is where... Uh, Abimelech lived. So uh, Abraham had actually traveled through Shechem, as did Jacob. Um, and Jacob actually settled there after he saw his brother Esau, after he was reunited with Esau. But Jacob had to leave after his daughter uh, was violated in the field. And uh, the, the men... Uh, the, the son of the king of that area uh, went to go marry her. And, and if you remember, Jacob made a co- uh, essentially a covenant with them that they would be, their whole tribe would be circumcised and, uh, and that way they would live in accordance with, uh, with their, with their uh, covenant that they had with God. Um, but while they were healing, Levi and Simeon came and slew all the men of that, of that area. So again, there's history uh, there in Shechem uh, that <laughs> seems like everywhere they go, they have history uh, with the people of the land. And that was the history with the city of Shechem. Um, Jacob had actually purchased a plot there, even though he had left. And uh, after they returned from Egypt, uh, Joseph's body was actually brought back there and buried there in that plot. So... Uh, they obviously had a history uh, that goes beyond what is briefly mentioned here. So, um, now we're going to go into the story of Abimelech. And Abimelech is uh, an anti-judge, is what he's usually referred to, because uh, he does not uh, fight for the people of Israel. Um, you'll see that they follow him, and of course it was a bad decision on their part. But we'll see what kind of... Uh, Issues come up with Abimelech. So in chapter 9, verse 1, 
read verse 1 through 6 uh, first of all. And Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and spoke to them and to the whole clan of the household of his mother's uh, father, saying, Speak now in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that seventy men, all the sons of Jerubbabel, rule over you, or that one man rule over you? Also remember that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the hearing of the leaders of Shechem. And they were inclined to follow Bimelech, for they said, He is our relative. And they gave him seventy pieces of silver from the house of baal Bareth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows, and they followed him. They went to their father's house at Apora and killed his brothers and the sons of Jerubbabel. Seventy men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left, for he had hid himself. And all the men of Shechem and all Beth Milo assembled together, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar which was in Shechem. So, it doesn't tell us the 70 sons if they were righteous leaders or if they were evil. Um, but the way this came about was definitely not uh, a good way, obviously. Uh, the It's interesting looking all throughout history at the great atrocities that happened to leaders of people and their families. Um, it actually makes... Uh, me very thankful to to be in the time that we're in right now, where we don't have to worry about that, because it seems like back then you had the leaders, which uh, would be overthrown ruthlessly, uh, and you know the whole family just ravaged, or be um, poor and have to deal with um, you know not having the ability to provide for your family or to uh, take care of them and uh, to be misused and abused, things like that. Uh, we definitely should be thankful in the time that we live in where we can be successful and not have to deal with, and I mean successful in a, in a general, in a way, like we can worship um, God, we can focus on our spiritual lives, we can uh, strive to better ourselves <clears throat> and not have to worry about the issues um, like they did. We can... And, and this is what I'm looking forward to, is just living my life in obscurity in service to God. And we, we can do that, uh, which is a great, uh, great gift from God. Because um, it would be hard to see your children starve, uh, see your you know, loved ones killed and, and abused. Um, it would be hard. And thankfully, we don't have to deal with that right now. I know there's other places in the world that they do, but it's just one of those many blessings that we should be counting. So, <clears throat> Jotham goes on in verses 7 through 15. I'm going to kind of just get through this because, um, to be honest, it, it's an interesting, um, uh, the way he covers this is just an interesting way that he talks about, uh, you know, the trees and them being fruitfulness. And, and um, uh, it's an interesting overview of the parts that he tells. Um, in s- verses 16 through 21, though, he connects that story to a, essentially a curse that he places on it. And I call it a curse because that's what the Bible calls it in, in chapter 9, verse tw- uh, 57. We'll read that here in a little while. So in 
verses 16, so he tells us stories about the, the trees looking for, you know, somebody to, to watch over it. And here's the rest of Jonathan, uh, Jonathan's response about that. Now, therefore, if you have dealt in truth and integrity in making Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubel and his house, and have dealt with him as he deserved, for my father fought for you, and he risked his life, and delivered you from the hand of Midian. But you have risen against my father's house today, and have killed his sons, seventy men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of the maids, the manservant king over the men of Shechem, because he is your relative. Then if you have dealt in truth and integrity with Jerubel and his house this day, rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume the men of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and consume Abimelech. And then Jotham escaped and fled and went to Beir and remained there because of Abimelech, his brother. So essentially, he's saying, if this is a righteous thing that you've done, then may you rejoice in it, and he and you. But if not, then of course, you guys are going to essentially turn on each other and consume each other. And that's exactly what we see happen, obviously, because it wasn't righteous. Now, in verse 22, we'll continue. And this is going to be a long section, so we're just going to read through it. It's pretty detailed, and uh, there's not much to add to it because of how detailed it is. So we're just going to read verse 22 to 57 and, and his conquest and essentially his downfall, Abimelech's downfall. Now, Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. Pretty short time. Then God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem, and the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, so that the violence done to the seventy sons of Jerubel might come, and their blood might be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. The men of Shechem set men in ambush against him on the tops of mountains, and they robbed all who might pass by them along the road. And it was told to Abimelech. Now, Gal, the son of Ebed, came with his relatives and crossed over into Shechem, and the men of Shechem put their trust in him. And they went out into the field, and they gathered the grapes of the vineyards and trod them, and they held a festival. And they went into the house of their god and ate and drank and cursed Abimelech. Now, it's, during those times, during any time that there's a king, it's very dangerous to speak ill will against that person, that leader. Um, so this is very brazen. Obviously, it happened a lot, but uh, obviously we're going to see here what that uh, ends of the results of that are going to be. But um, of course, they're drinking in their festival, so they're most likely intoxicated. And he starts talking like people do when they get impaired and they're not thinking correctly. <clears throat> they speak without a filter. So in verse. Uh, <laughs> 28. Then Gael, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech and who is Shechem, that we should serve him? Is he not the son of uh, Jerubel, and is Zebul not his lieutenant? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve him? Would therefore that his people were under my authority, then I would remove Abimelech. And he said to Abimelech, 
increase your army and come out. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gael, the son of Ebed, his anger burned. He sent messengers to Abimelech deceitfully, saying, Behold, Gael, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and behold, they are stirring up the city against you. Now, therefore, arise by night, you and your people who are with you, and lie in wait in the field. So, uh, it's interesting that it says that uh, the leader of the city, Zebul, um, he heard the words and became angered, and he sent um, he sent a letter to uh, to uh, Abimelech saying more than what this guy was saying. Obviously, this guy was speaking uh, words of contempt and um, essentially mutinous words, but he wasn't uh, stirring up the entire city to revolt, uh, which is what he told Abimelech. So it kind of reminds me of the devil um, when he is, talks deceitfully. Uh, he takes partial truths and he makes them worse. He makes them larger than what they are. But we're going to continue here. Um, and you'll see that that actually uh, works against him. And it turns not only uh, Abimelech against um, Gael, but against the whole city. So, now therefore, arise by night in verse 32. Arise by night, you and the people who are with you, and lie in wait in the field. In the morning, as soon as the sun is up, you shall rise early and rush upon the city. And behold, when he and his people who are with him come out against you, you shall do to them whatever you can. So Abimelech and all the people who were with him arose by night and lay in wait against Shechem in four companies. Now, Gael the son of Ebed went out and stood at the entrance of the city gate. And Abimelech and the people who were with him arose from the ambush. When Gael saw the people, he said to Zebulon, sorry, Zebul, look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. But Zebul said to him, you are seeing the shadow of the mountains as if they were men. Gael spoke again and said, behold, people are coming down from the highest part of the land. And one company comes by the way of the diviner's oak. Then Zebul said to him, where is your boasting now with which you said, who was Abimelech, that we should serve him? Is it not the people whom you despised? Go out and fight with them. So Gael went out before the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him, and many fell wounded to the entrance of the gate. Then Abimelech remained at Armah, but Zebul drove out Gael and his relatives so that none remain in Shechem. Now it came about the next day that the people went out to the field, and it was told to Abimelech. So remember, Gale's out of here. He was driven out. Zebul helped drive him out of the city. So there shouldn't be any real reason for Abimelech to stay here and continue sieging the city. So the people of the city went out to go work the fields, right? <clears throat> Verse 42, now it came about the next day that the people went out to the field, and it was told to Abimelech. So he took his people and divided them into three companies and lay in wait in the field. And when he looked, he saw the people coming out from the city. He arose against them and slew them. Then Abimelech and the company who was with him dashed forward and stood in the entrance of the city gate. The two other companies then dashed against all who were in the field and slew them. 
Abimelech fought against the city all day, and he captured the city and killed the people who were in it. Then he raised, ra- uh, raised the city and sowed it with salt. Obviously, if you sow, uh, you know, fields of, uh, that are being growing things with salt, that kills it. So that way, uh, they can't grow more. So, uh, the, he's utterly, uh, ravaging the city. Uh, verse 46. When all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the inner chamber of the Temple of Elbereth, and it was told to Abimelech, all the leaders of the town of Shechem were gathered together. So, Abimelech went up to Mount Zalmon, he and all the people who were with him, and Abimelech took an axe in his hand, and he cut down a branch from the trees. He lifted it and set, laid it on his shoulder. Then he said to the people who were with him, What have you seen me do? Hurry, do likewise. All the people also cut down each one of his branch and followed Abimelech and put them on the inner chamber and set the inner chamber on fire over those inside so that all the men of the lower tower, oh, sorry, excuse me, all the men of the tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. <clears throat> Verse 50, then Abimelech went to Thebes and camped against Thebes and captured it. So he's now going. He's just he's just on a campaign now. Uh, it seems like he's just bloodthirsty and, and just continuing on. So we'll see Abimelech's downfall here pretty quickly. There was a strong tower in the center of the city. So kind of a similar image. He's using the similar tactics to what he used uh, before. There was a strong tower in the center of the city, and all the men and women and, and all the leaders of the city fled there and shut themselves in. And they went upon the roof of the tower. So Bimlet came to the tower and fought against it and approached the entrance of the tower to burn it with fire. Again, that same technique that was successful before. But a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head, crushing his skull. But he was still alive. Now, um, I don't know if you've seen these mills that they're talking about, but uh, the millstone in itself is pretty much unmovable. Um, and then there was a, another millstone on top of that that they would use to rotate around it and crush the grain so that they can get the, the edible part separated. Uh, and these are heavy. We're talking it, easily 100, 200 pounds uh, on this millstone. So <laughs> uh, I, I would imagine this woman needs some help, but if not, either way, a uh, very strong woman, um, like we've covered in the rest of Judges. And um, supposedly when, uh, during siege warfare, the men would be throwing spears and using bows and arrows and fighting people off, um, fighting people off the walls with their swords. But the women would still help out, and they would, lo- they would throw stones and things down on people that were coming up. So this was, a, you know, everyone, all hands on deck affair when a uh, town was getting sieged. Everybody would be helping out, essentially. And so... You can see this technique was pretty good. So he got his skull crushed by this huge millstone, and surprisingly, he's still alive with how heavy that thing is. Um, but in verse 54, he called quickly to the young man, his armor-bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, so that it will not be said of me. A woman slew him. So the young man pierced him through, and he died. By the way, he was still known for being killed by a woman, so that technique did not... It was not very successful. Um, 
verse 55, when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, each departed to his home. Thus God, and um, like we talked about before, this is very disjointed, disunited area. So as soon as you see that your leader's dead, you're just going to go back home. You're going to go back to the land where you're from and essentially leave peacefully. Uh, verse 56, thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father in killing his 70 brothers. Also God returned all the wickedness from the men of Shechem on their, on their heads, and the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerobel, came upon them. Pretty uh, devastating story for all involved. I couldn't imagine having 70 half-brothers and having them murdered. Uh, again, the times are just uh, interesting and different. Thankfully, we don't have to live during these times. All right, now we're going to get into an actual judge, and that's Jephthah. Um, now that that time was is past, thankfully that was only three years that Abimelech was, uh, was reigning. But first, um, before we get to Jephthah, there's two other minor judges that are briefly covered. Again, I always wonder why God decided to give such detail with some judges and uh, little with the others. So we'll see in chapter uh, 1, Tola, he judged about 23 years. Uh, and again, that's all we know about him, pretty much. Um, we know that we, he lived in Shamir, in the hill country of Ephraim, Ephraim uh, what it says in verse, uh, in verse 1. And then it says he judged 23 years, and he died, and was buried in Shamar. Then after him, Jair the Gilead, Gileadite rose, and judged Israel 22 years. So again, that's a pretty good amount of time, almost about a, a generation, about 40 years a little over 40 years, 45, between the two of them. Uh, but that's all we know about him. Except that for uh, Jair, he had, in verse 4, 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities in the land of Gilead that are called Havoth Jair. To this day, and remember when they're saying to this day, this is probably Samuel that's, that's collecting these stories and writing it, so it's pretty, pretty recently after this time. In verse 6, we see that cycle repeat after the judges. The sons of Israel did again evil in the sight of the Lord. Serve the Baals and the Ashroth, the gods of Amram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines. Thus they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. The Lord, or sorry, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and in the hands of the sons of Ammon. They afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year for 18 years. They were afflicted, all the sons of Israel, who were beyond the Jordan in Gilead, in the land of the Amorites. Um, we're going to see some interesting differences in this cycle um, here coming up. Uh, so take note of that. Uh, it, it again goes to just how um, forgiving our God is. Um, but he's getting, you can, you can tell that he's getting very tired of what's going on with the, uh, his people. So we'll continue reading here. Um, the sons, in verse 9, the sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was greatly distressed. Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. 
The Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the sons of Ammon, and the Philistines? Also when the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Mennonites, Maonites, oppressed you, you cried out to me, and I delivered you from your hands. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will no longer deliver you. That's the first time that that's been mentioned in that way, uh, that God says, I'm done. Uh, and that would be devastating to hear uh, from God, from God's, uh, <clears throat> from God in general. But let's see their response, and let's see God's response to their response. It's, it's very, uh, it's very powerful. So chapter, uh, sorry, verse 14. Go and cry to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. So the sons of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only, please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. Uh, This is definitely a a, a child-parent relationship, I can see. Um, you know, you giving ch- chance after chance to, to that child who you created and who you love and <clears throat> them continuously uh, going through that cycle of, of turning to you, needing you, then getting independent and thinking they don't need you anymore and, and uh, going against, you know, what they've been taught and, and falling and stumbling to, into, uh, into sin. Uh, and then coming back to you, and then you're just getting fed up with it. And I'm done. I can't handle this anymore. But yet, you see your children, you see your child. Uh, they they turn back. They try to do their best, <clears throat> and you feeling compassion for that child, and so not being able to bear that that misery of uh, them and, and, and helping them. And so that's what that's what happens. God is compassionate, and He is loving for His people, His creation. So the sons of Ammon were summoned. So in verse 17 and down, um, they put together a fighting force. Um, they're going to, and it, it appears that God is um, endorsing this, they, th- they put together a fighting force to, to fight off the people who are oppressing them. So they were summoned and they camped against Gilead. And the sons of Israel gathered and they camped in Mizpah. The people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, who is the man who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So they had a fighting force, but they didn't have a leader. Um, whether they still were neglecting God as their leader, or they were just looking for a man-made head uh, to lead them, they were still pretty aimless. They had a fighting force, but they didn't know how to use it. And in enters Jephthah, which... This is going to be an interesting story to read because he is not someone who you would normally think God would use. So let's read about Jephthah here, and and we'll get into that here in a second. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jephthah the Gilead, Gileadite, who was a valiant warrior, uh, was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot, and Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore him sons, And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. 
Here we see again that, um, that design that God made for the family and the issues that come up uh, that happen uh, when that design is, is altered or it's not followed. Um, and it's a pretty sad situation um, because they could have embraced him as a brother uh, at the very least. And, uh, but instead they, they cast him out. And Jephthah's story is kind of uh, tragic. Uh, that's just the start of the tragedy that he gets thrown out. And we'll see what happens next. So uh, verse 3. Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Toab. A worthless, uh, and worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went out with him. And it came about that while the sons of Ammon fought against Israel, when the sons of Ammon fought against Israel, the elders Gilead of Gilead went to Jephthah from the land of Toab. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our chief, that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. So they cast him out, and now they're coming back to him for help. Uh, he must have been a very good warrior, a very good leader. Um, it's strange that they would have cast him out in the first place if he was such a good warrior, but obviously they recognized that he would be able to lead the, their armies. Um, and they must have been in desperate need to, to go get somebody that they've cast out of their, out of their civilization. Uh, okay. We might have to breeze through some of this, sadly. Um, because, so, I have to give a Cliff Notes version of a little bit of this. So Jephthah in verse verse 10, verse, uh, chapter 9, sorry, chapter 11, verse 9. Jephthah said to the elders, If you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon, and the Lord gives him up to me, will I become your head? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord is witness between us. Surely they, uh, we will do as you have said. So he made a covenant with them. I will go out and fight with for you, and then if if I succeed, I will essentially be your leader. And uh, they agree to that. Now we're going to um, turn over to Jephthah. We're going to read through here that Jephthah is a pretty. He's actually a pretty smart. Not only is he a good fighter and a good leader. But he's also a good uh, negotiator. The problem is that his negotiations never work uh, because the people that he's talking to are essentially kind of stubborn. Um, so he goes out to Ammon and says, hey, hey, what have I done? What have we done to you people? And they said, you've taken our lands. And they say, that's not true. We've taken the lands that God's given us, not no more. Um, and essentially he tried to negotiate with them saying, let us not fight um, unless... Uh, you know, since we haven't done anything against you except what God has given to us, but if there's an issue between our gods, then we can still, you know, we can fight it out. And they end up, the kings of Ammon disregarded that message. Um, and they, they fought. And Jephthah made a vow that shows how much he does not know God. Um, he, he said, I don't, I don't know, most of you are probably familiar with this, whatever comes out of my, my gate, 
when I return, if I'm successful, I'll sacrifice to the Lord. Um, why he did that, obviously he doesn't know God, because God didn't require that. God doesn't want that. <clears throat> he made that vow, and uh, he's going to have to reap the consequences of it. Um, and, and, of course, he was successful um, with, his, with his battle with Am- Amorites and beat them. And then when he comes home, in verse... Thirty-four. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. And she was the, his one and only child, besides he had no other son or daughter. And when he saw this, of course, he was greatly distressed and tore his clothes. Um, very understanding daughter, she says, do what you need to do. Uh, you know, fulfill that oath that you made with God. Um, but give me two months to, to mourn my virginity, uh, the fact that she hadn't had children yet. And uh, he fulfilled his, uh, we'll give him that much, that he fulfilled his oath. He knew that he couldn't go back on it. Um, and uh, that became a, that became a, a, a tradition in that area, supposedly, that they would go out the, the, uh, in verse 40, the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Uh, and just real briefly, I also wanted to cover um, Ephraim. They're brothers. I don't know if you guys remember when we were uh, covering uh, Gideon. Ephraim came and said, well, he, Gideon went to Ephraim and said, hey, will you help us fight? And they said, are you about to win? Because if not, we're not going to help you fight. And they, he said, forget about it. And he continued fighting. And, of course, uh, Ephraim had to pay for that. Same thing with Jephthah. Ephraim said, hey, you, you beat the, you beat the uh, um, sons of Ammon. Why didn't you call us out to help fight you, help fight with you? Jephthah said, I did. I did call you out, and you didn't come. Um, and they end up fighting with each other over that. Jephthah again tries to uh, to negotiate with them, saying, I, I tried, you didn't come, so I took that in my own hands, and we fought and we beat them. And uh, Ephraim didn't care about that. So there was a battle. 42,000 Ephraim, uh, men of Ephraim died at that time, in verse uh, 6. Uh, it was pretty devastating. And that was brother against brother, just because of pride. Um, we're gonna we're gonna have to call it there. Uh, thank you all for your time. And uh, Caleb is gonna be teaching next Sunday, starting with Samson. So thank you.